0: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Chef Nephi Craig. He's founder of the Native American Culinary Association. He's on the USU campus for several days to conduct a series of food presentations and deliver a lecture on his work with the three sisters of Native American cuisine, beans, corn, and squash. He's teaching nutrition, sharing cultural heritage as well. Uh, Nephi Craig has 20 years of culinary experience, having worked around the world and provides te- uh, trainings, workshops, and lectures on Native American cuisine for health at schools, restaurants, universities, treatment centers, behavioral health agencies, and tribal uh, entities. Uh, I should mention at the top here, uh, you have an opportunity, if you're in the Logan area, to uh, come and uh, hear uh, Chef Craig. Nephi Craig will be giving a presentation on Native American cuisine and culinary culture this afternoon, 3 o'clock. Merrill Kazir Library Room 101 A reception follows, and that is free and open uh, to the public. Nephi Craig uh, was until recently executive chef of Sunrise Park Resort Hotel um, with the White Mountain Apache Tribe in uh, Arizona. Um, he is currently nutritional recovery program coordinator and executive chef at the Rainbow Treatment Center and Cafe Gojo on the White Mountain Apache uh, Tribe lands in uh, Arizona. And uh, Nephi Craig, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me here. I'm very excited. So, uh, interesting background, a lot to talk about. um, Native American culture, cuisine, um, history. And even we'll get to talking about how that history connects up to nutrition today. Uh, I guess for all of us, but uh, maybe concentrating on Native American peoples. Uh, So you grew up with the White Mountain Apache uh, nation there. Yeah. Uh, So your mother... Apache, your father Navajo. Yes. But it's uh, matrilineal, so you, yeah. you your father was, is you say in a talk, humble enough to raise you as an Apache, right?
1: Yeah. He, um, uh, I was born and raised on the White Mount Apache tribe, and um, uh, since we are matrilineal societies, I identify as um, White Mount Apache, but I never forget that I'm, I'm Diné. I'm Navajo on my dad's side from Crown Point, New Mexico, in the eastern Navajo Nation in New Mexico um my parents were uh like I was saying my father was cool enough to let us um i'd self identify in that way and never really force um too much on us in that mm. in that culturally in that way so I was sure. really
0: really uh, grateful for that uh so your your father sounds like a very interesting man Vincent yeah That's his name right uh-huh um, and uh, so he, he he was a singer i guess he was a performer
1: yeah he was uh Vincent my dad was uh, the late Vincent Craig he was a singer and songwriter um very well known around uh Indian country and especially on the Navajo Nation uh for his uh his humorous songs one being Rita or he created the first uh, Navajo superhero called Mutton Man um <laughs> Mutton Man Yeah Mutton okay. Man he could uhs uh, <laughs> faster than the what say he could leap shiprock in a single bound faster than the BIA and you know all these really kind of cool um things <clears throat> and um he uh he was a cartoonist and a singer and songwriter um he wrote uh, um created numerous albums and later on in life I would uh, help him create two of them with uh, my keyboard skills mm. so it was he was a very uh influential character in my life um he was a United States Marine Corps sergeant uh he met my mom in in Hawaii and then um they ultimately came back and started their family. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's unusual. What were they doing out in Hawaii? Um my father was stationed in the Marine Corps and my mother was attending BYU. Oh, okay. Yeah, so yeah. they met they met, met out. Met in there. Hawaii. Pretty
0: okay. neat. Yeah. 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 Uh and then your grandfather sounds like a very interesting yeah. fellow. Um, Tell me about him. My my grandfather, Bob Et City Craig. Um
1: so uh Et City is our uh our our original name in Navajo. Uh, last name, but for purposes of going to war to enlist in the United States Marine Corps, he changed his name to Craig, and uh, Bob at City Craig would eventually um, enlist in in, uh, World War II and become a Navajo Code Talker. He would serve on Guam, Guadalcanal, and was wounded on Iwo Jima, and uh, he returned home and uh, started
0: his own family as well. Hmm. yeah, interesting. Uh, so that's that's great heritage, uh, obviously. Uh so uh, how does a young man on the, you know, uh, Apache White Mountain lands end up uh, as a French chef? That's that's what happened to you, right?
1: Yeah, it I I kind of don't I feel like that was the only option in terms of going to culinary school uh in 1997, 98. It was a typical culinary school education and somewhat today was primarily French based or classically based. So that was the language I began to adopt. And I feel like um, growing up in uh, kind of a, a family that took pride in the military, I was uh, gravitated towards structure and discipline and organization. Uh, so the kitchens are just naturally hierarchical hmm. and um, they're, they're very kind of, orga- high, high caliber kitchens are very very disciplined and structured. So I didn't know what I was getting into but i ended up being able to thrive in the in in the controlled crisis of a kitchen <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> yeah yeah uh,
0: was it uh high stress is it
1: yeah it's um a lot of a lot of food industry professionals will um, you'll hear the common term like uh controlled chaos or mm-hmm. organized chaos you know um but it is high high stress fast paced um uh, many many variables at play at once uh, so I think it takes a certain kind of mindset to to really kind
0: of go for it. You mm-hmm. know. And you apparently had that mindset, and uh, I guess enjoying your career, and, and you you've been many places around the world. Yeah, I um, see.
1: The way I started out with a with a typical culinary school education, um, I looked for the the best restaurants in my area by advice of my mentors in school, and the best place that was in in Phoenix at the time was uh, Mary Elaine's at the Phoenician. And that was a very classical um, French kitchen. It was one of the 12, at the time, I think the only 12 five-star, five-diamond resorts in on the West Coast. And if Michelin was, if Michelin the Michelin guide system was in the country back then, it probably would have earned a couple of Michelin stars maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what I sought out, and I was lucky enough to get into that uh, kitchen when I was 23 years old. And it was like, I always say it was like climbing the mountain to the Shaolin Temple to learn the secrets of Kung Fu Mm -hmm. with the masters, you know. Yeah. Um, (laughs) But I I was able to get there. And um, many turning points happened in my career with Native Foods. But when I got to Mary Lane's of the Phoenician, they had um, uh, uh, classical dishes being reinterpreted with like buffalo from the Great Plains, Mm -hmm. from uh, tribal operations there. And they had like uh, salmon from the Quinault River, the Quinault tribe area, you know. So these are really powerful ancestral foods that had deep cultural significance Mm -hmm. to peoples of North America were being used at a high level. Mm -hmm. And that brought a sense of validation for me as a Native person. It brought a sense of um, possibility and potential. Mm -hmm. Um, But still, I had to keep my head down and just keep really training and grinding Mm -hmm. uh, to be able to um, pick up those skills to build myself up again. So it it was awesome. It was an amazing time there. Yeah. You say build yourself up Mm -hmm. uh, again. I had come from working five years at the country club at DC Ranch in North Scottsdale. And um, a lot of trial and error there. My mentor was uh, Chef Chris Olson. And um, uh, so I had to like relearn, unlearn and relearn everything that I thought I knew. Mm -hmm. It was a complete different mindset Mm -hmm. and structure uh, from the country club setting, which was excellent and amazing in its own. And then Mary Lane's was a whole different caliber mm-hmm. um, in terms of equipment, professionalism,
0: expectations, all those things, yeah. standards. Um, it, was, so, it was amazing. So relearn, unlearn uh, could be uh, could be metaphors for what you then went to do. I don't know if you thought about that <laughs> at a certain point. Yes, it you, was. You, you, you made a transition. You wanted to emphasize Native American cuisine.
1: Yeah, and, and I think it had always been with me, mm-hmm. um, just growing up in White River and— uh, of going to high school in Window Rock, Arizona, and Dinétá, it—I it, um, always wanted to do something cool with native foods because I, I grown up seeing native foods, eating it occasionally, and kind of having um, um, exposure to those those foodways. And I—I uh, I really enjoyed the process. And I, I um, so when I got to culinary school, I would ask uh, non-native chefs like, "Hey, chef, is there such a thing as Native American cuisine?" And my the responses I would get would be kind of a dismissive response, like, well, I know you make fry bread, I know mm-hmm. you boil stuff, mm-hmm. you know, those kind of real simplistic kind of dismissive responses. And to me, that didn't sit well with me, but I didn't respond in a negative way. I just kind of said, okay, that's, that's that's it's not cool to talk about this, you know. So that, that uh, seed observation from a young person eventually turned into Native American uh, Culinary Association because... Early on, I wanted to find a native chef to work for, so I could be trained by a native chef um, to learn what they knew it was kind of the the mystique that it had for me and um but it it was there was they were a rarity in mm-hmm. nineteen ninety eight and from where I was standing and uh, I always joke around and say that um I would enter kitchens and people would say, uh, "I know a chef who knows a chef or I know this guy who knows a guy who who." Who knows one, a native chef somewhere, you know? Mm-hmm. And I say it was like a Bigfoot sighting, you know? Mm, like right. somebody knew somebody <laughs> who knew somebody who saw yeah. one somewhere, right. you know? Yeah. Um, but ultimately, a lot of, uh, I wanted to learn from someone and I figured in like as early as 1999 and 2000, I said, I'm, I'm gonna start a concept and I'm gonna do a Native American Coloring Association because uh, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm committed to this and I'm gonna do this as a pathway for the rest of my life. And eventually I'll climb the ranks and be a chef, and eventually i'll have the the ability to train other natives so twenty years later i'm I'm right
0: here now so mm, yeah it's good pretty cool yeah, yeah uh achieve your goal yeah, yeah. that's uh, that's wonderful um so native American cuisine uh, I was reading a newsweek article in which you you appear an uh, interview in the uh, their line was, um, if you ask a man on the street what Native American cuisine is, you might get some mumbling about Thanksgiving, and then uh, before we went on the air, you you added and they might add fry bread, you know, or or something, something like that. But n- not a not a whole lot of understanding in the in the general conception yeah. about what Native American cuisine is. Mm-hmm. Certainly, and
1: it, it, uh, there's another uh, piece out there where. Um, I'm quoted as saying um, the biggest misconception about Native American cuisine is that it does not exist. And I think um, uh, the term cuisine implies fine dining. It implies a certain opulence and luxury. Uh, but in reality, the word cuisine simply just means uh, food that represents a people. Mm. And so um, when uh, when we examine and look at the foodways and agricultural history and scientific history of indigenous foods, we really begin to go on this journey of discovery and this journey of justice and injustice along the way, uh, very much similar to um, salt wars and spice wars in Europe. Um, very amazing um, uh, time in the Americas for the past 500 years as it relates to food history. So, um, uh, a lot of, there's a, it, there's a lot of complex reasons why we don't see many Native American restaurants mm-hmm. or even Native American
0: chefs. Um, there it's, it's a pretty deep issue. It's really neat. Yeah. Um, let's take a break. Then I want to jump into this. You, uh, yeah. in a presentation you have said, uh, why are there no Native American cuisine restaurants? Um, well, we talk about the Gold Rush and Manifest Destiny and uh, Louisiana Purchase, and there's, a, <clears throat> there's another side to, to those, those historical uh, events. There let's let's talk about that. And uh, you talk about a dignified resurgence of ancestral knowledge, which let's talk about that as well. Uh, more following this break. Indonesian textiles use dyes derived from indigo leaves, turmeric roots, and morinda bark to produce different colors, demonstrating knowledge that Indonesian weavers have of their tropical environment. Styles and designs such as batik and akat vary by region throughout Indonesia, and can inform on material origins and trade relationships between regions. Symbols and patterns of Indonesian textiles also inform us about outside influences. Octagonal patterns reveal a history and progression of Islamic influences in Indonesia, and the integration of yellow triangular shapes, distinctive of Indian patterns, show a strong cultural influence from India. Examining textiles details tell us not only about how it was made, but cultural processes behind the product. This segment of Anthropology, What's It to You?, has been made possible by our members and the USU Museum of Anthropology collection, including pre-Columbian Peruvian ceramics, Indonesian textiles, and Great Basin. Details at anthromuseum.usu.edu. Hey, it's Luke Burbank. This week on LiveWire, Roger Reeves on what poetry's job is. It's there to be our vegetables. Sometimes it's our candy, (laughs) right? Sometimes it's the alcohol, you know, and you want to blame it on the alcohol, you know? So (laughs) it's like the poem can be anything we need it to be. That's this week on Livewire from PRI. Saturday evening at 5 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. My guest is Nephi Craig. He is a chef. He is founder of the Native American Culinary Association. He's on the Utah State University campus for a series of foods presentations and lectures. And he's teaching nutrition and sharing cultural knowledge. Uh, he's been meeting with uh, folklore, nutrition, plant soils, and climate students. Uh, in fact, he been meeting with students from grade school through graduate school. So they've, they've been keeping you busy, in effect, Craig. Um, Nephi Craig has 20 years of culinary experience having worked around the world uh, and provides trainings, workshops, and lectures on Native American cuisine for health at schools, restaurants, university treatment centers behavioral health agencies, tribal entities Uh, so there is an event to which you are invited and it's uh, a lecture Uh, it's on Native American cuisine and culinary culture that is 3 o'clock this afternoon Merrill Kazir Library Room 101 reception follows uh, so uh, Nephi Craig is uh, White Mountain Apache and uh, Navajo. He's an executive uh, chef, and uh, currently he is um, Nutritional Recovery Program Coordinator and executive chef, to, uh, chef at the Rainbow Treatment Center and Cafe Gojo on the White Mountain Apache Tribe in Arizona. We'll talk about that as we, we go along. Interesting intersection there of uh, the people in recovery, and food and yes. culture, right? Yes. So. But first, I want to get into this history to which we made reference before the break. Um, so uh, you you pose. Uh, so I watched a lecture, and people can find this. Uh, just Google this. This is, uh, I think, last year. Mm-hmm. You gave a a TED Talk type presentation yeah. uh, to the uh, cowboy gathering. Yeah, it was the a cowboy ca- gathering. Cowboy Nelko. poetry gathering. Yeah. Nelko. Yeah, and. Um, Maybe people are conditioned to treat you warmly because your father was there a lot, right? Yeah, I I think so. Um,
1: I was invited to present at the Elko, in Elko, at the Cowboy Poetry Gathering. And I was like, what? How? How did this happen, you know? And I was like, my dad used to perform there. And uh, my dad was a singer and songwriter. So as I mentioned, and um, somehow they, uh, in their planning activities, they were looking to do uh, people doing, common people doing extraordinary work. And somehow they came across my stuff and uh, invited me to speak. So I got
0: to uh, return about 25 years later to Elko. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a nice continuation, isn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah. yeah. So in that presentation, you pose a question. Why are there no Native American cuisine restaurants? And then you go on to, to cite some historical events. Mm-hmm. Gold Rush, um, Manifest Destiny. Uh, Louisiana Purchase. So how does that relate to why there are no Native American cuisine restaurants? Yeah, as as I address these
1: issues and go on this uh, uh, journey of understanding and articulation, I always uh, go at it with a sense of responsibility and self-determination, um, not blaming uh, certain issues or parties. Um... But in all reality, one of the major reasons that we do not do not have many uh, Native American restaurants or Native chefs is, is a result. It can be rooted in historical trauma or historical traumas um, across Native America. And in that particular presentation, we talked, uh, we talked about um, great American benchmarks. Um, Louisiana Purchase, Lewis and Clark Expedition, and the California Gold Rush, which were symbols of progress in the American psyche. Uh, But from an indigenous perspective, they were the advances and um, the examples of the ethno-genocide of people, land, and waters. Um, There were terms used like terra nullius and manifest destiny to justify the taking of an entire landscape. And in that process, the uh, violent displacement and interruption of foodways and ceremony and culture um, indigenous foodways deeply are connected to uh, um, identity, time, and place. So when you look at westward expansion and themes of uh, of colonial thought being implanted and Indigenous people having no choice but to um, fight back or be uh, overrun in the process, it's a very traumatic experience, uh, widespread from Florida to Washington State, from uh, California to New York, uh, all these examples they, of American history have a, a profound impact on the other side from the indigenous perspective. And it's a tough topic to begin to talk about, but I think our generation is ready for it now. It's safer to address these issues than it ever has been, I believe. And so I feel very fortunate to be able to uh, intertwine those themes into food and cooking, uh, indigenous resurgence and health. Um, because I, I do my best to appro- approach it with a sense of accountability and responsibility, and again, not be blaming certain issues, but highlighting the bio social effects
0: of these traumas. You know, complex grief. It's it's really interesting to me. It's cool. We'll we'll pick up that thread, the complex grief and how that relates yeah. to recovery. But um, just parenthetically, before we're going out, I was reading that you you said growing up, you know. Uh, White Mountain, and, and then went to uh, high school in Window Rock. You said uh, you were getting kind of the standard two-page history or social studies, you know, that mm-hmm. like, I guess a lot of us got, right? Yeah, it,
1: and <clears throat> I think uh, most most of uh, America does have that two-three-page overview of Native American uh, history, which uh, um, which which a lot of scholars and some people refer to as the master narrative. Um, because it, it's not the the accurate history, and um, so what what I've learned along the way is that by following the food and the um, the food history, we really retell a, a clear um, a story of, of Native peoples and their uh, ancestral intelligence and complexity and sophistication. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's
0: it's a really cool way to unravel this this knot in our hearts. I, I believe. Hmm. By the way, are, are your kids getting a, a different, you know? these things being taught differently um my <clears throat> I, I um my kids i uh,
1: kind of following what my the way my dad uh, approached it is not to really force anything mm-hmm. but i always will point out um examples of injustices or point out microaggressions as they happen uh point out situations that used to be acceptable or that are unacceptable um, and try to dispel notions, not in a very aggressive, again, not in a blaming way, mm-hmm. but in a way that hopefully allows them to make decisions that will stay with them uh, at, when they in, enter
0: adulthood. Mm-hmm. Um, but, th- but this is at home, right? Yeah, you're, is, you're doing this, this, is at this. home. I wonder about the curriculum. I guess that would be controlled by the state. I don't know or, or um, for our program. That, yeah, um, uh, well, no, I mean for at at school, you know, elementary oh, schools school, or, I, or high school. I, I suppose
1: you know? it's changing. I don't mm-hmm. know exactly what the curriculums. Uh, um uh, encompass in terms of native history I know there's more native programs uh, there there's more uh, we're more connected ever, than ever before through social media mm-hmm. so you can follow certain hashtags or young people can follow certain hashtags and be connected to social movements and justice movements as well mm-hmm. so there's more options um for them but I also do know that um, indigeneity and themes of decolonization uh, um, they, they threaten certain structures. So mm. it, it's, uh, it, it's kind of up, it is controlled by a certain, by the States. Mm. And, um, but we'll see how it continues to move forward. I think, mm. and I think kids are interested more and willing to talk about it.
0: Yeah. Um, so this is interesting intersection of, uh, culture and history and food. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you talk about recovering this ancestral knowledge regarding, regarding food. How do you, how do you go about doing that? Um, I heard a farmer tell me once, uh, "to to save a seed you plant
1: it." So it's like to recover a language we speak it. Uh, to recover a culture we participate. You know, um, we are we embody indigeneity. So when we when we act on it and give it life, that's how we reclaim it. Um, uh, a lot of times there's these very romantic notions about. Um, that include themes of really uh, intense saviorism, that one individual is going to save a community or a family or X, Y, and Z. But in reality, one individual just saves one individual. And in the recovery process, that's how it goes. And and I believe that um, that's how it's going to continue to manifest itself. So um, that's why promoting uh, these certain themes and making those connections with history, food, and nutrition are very important because hopefully we we retell that story with uh, a code of ethics and principles and allow people to make decisions for themselves
0: um hopefully they look in the mirror you know Mm -hmm. Uh, you talk about uh, it could be something as simple as harvesting acorns yes yes ancestral
1: knowledge is powerful and um when we're when we're uh in a academic mindset or professional mindset uh, or even just general's mindset of being a civilian in in the country uh, i think we where we look for complex validation by western standards right um we look for complex uh, validations in practice or food and nutrition um but in reality ancestral knowledge is is the act of um just greeting someone by saying dagote in apache which means hello um gathering acorns or pinions um laughing at a joke and at an indigenous joke or, um, how you interact with grandma versus how you interact with your brother. There's, there's certain, um, very basic, simple protocols that are indigenous in heart and spirit. And that in itself are, is the ancestral knowledge. Um, and we kind of, I, I think at least for me, I know that in the past I was one of those people that looked for, um, uh, really complex validation of our food ways. But as I've gotten older and um, began my own family and my own journey as a chef, I realized that simplicity is the most powerful thing and are, um usually the most simple techniques or approaches are also the, the most complex. Mm-hmm. So it's
0: kind of the irony yeah. of yeah. Love it all. It's cool. Uh, that has application to a lot of things in life, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it does. Seek that simplicity, uh-huh. yeah. which is hard to do, right? Yeah, it's, 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 it's very difficult. It's hard to do. Uh, if you just joined us, we we're talking with Nephi Craig, um, he is uh, a Native American chef. He is uh, founder of the Native American Culinary Association. He's on the USU campus uh, to uh, for several events, and he's been meeting with um, students from grade school up through graduate school. Lots of presentations. Uh, there's a lecture that's free and open to the public. You're invited uh, this afternoon, three o'clock, Merrill Kazer Library Room 101, with uh, a reception uh, to follow. Um, I want to uh, have you talk about the Three Sisters. What mm-hmm. are the Three Sisters?
1: The, the Three Sisters are a combination of three very important cultivars that were domesticated by indigenous peoples. It began in Mesoamerica. Um, then they contain corn, beans, and squash. And they're grown together in a farming technique known today as companion planting. Um, You could take it a step further and add a couple more uh, companion plants, and it's a milpa planting. Um, But the three sisters, uh, the corn provides a natural beanstalk for beans. Uh, Squash uh, shades the soil and prevents erosion, retains moisture, and uh, beans release nitrogen into the soil, which the corn needs to grow. And so not only do they... Uh, support each other uh, and uh, agriculturally, they also complement each other when you eat them because corn is missing a couple amino acids to form a protein and the beans and the squash supply them. So when you consume all the way from seed to human consumption, they're working together for us and uh, they form a complete protein. and, And in my opinion, that's what, that's a, a powerful example of ancestral intelligence and uh, agricultural sciences, and um, the notion that um, uh, indigenous diets, pre-colonial and pre-reservation diets, were mostly plant-based. Mm-hmm. So we had a, 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 an intelligent way to source out our our proteins without animal proteins, or source out our potassium, like with choya buds, for example, without drinking dairy. Um, so, it, and I use it as a as an entryway. Into native cuisine, um, because for a long time the entryway was fry bread to native cooking. Um, a lot of uh, flour-based, lard-based, beef-based, pork-based dishes, um, which are which in fact are not indigenous. And so I use the three sisters. It, it kind of originates more. <clears throat> excuse me on the on the the Great Lakes Midwest Eastern stories. Um, and the reason that I use it when I was growing up on the Apache Navajo reservation, I never heard it referred to as called the three sisters, but I always saw corn, beans and squash Mm. in our stoops, our stews, at our celebrations. Maybe they were all three together. Maybe they were separate, but they were always visible characters or cultivars. So I like to teach it because as you said, we taught it to grade school kids and we could teach it to graduate students. We could teach it to nutritionists, and we could teach it to food scientists. And it promotes a very simple message of symbiotic relationships. Uh, we can teach kids to work together and talk about nutrition and eating colorful foods, you know. And we can break down the science and history of it all, too. So I feel like it's a very dynamic um, teaching companion that, that I use as a tool. Mm-hmm. So that's why I, I like to promote it and use it. Yeah,
0: mm-hmm. This is interesting. You mentioned fry bread. You're going back to you know deep origins with the three sisters mm-hmm. fry bread's much more recent right and that and that's that's part of this part of this this colonial history <laughs> yeah you know, yeah right? it is it Frybread.
1: is and and it's it's a uh, it's a it's a big um piece of our public health epidemic right now too mm-hmm. uh flour based foods and uh lard based foods um anything that consists of beef chicken pork uh flour lard and sugar those are all um uh, the recipe uh, for a widespread public health epidemic mm-hmm. of di- diabetes,
0: obesity, heart disease. Yeah. Lard and, and flour and, yeah. and all that came in when um, and, when the nations were placed on reservations. Yeah, right? they're, they're, those are all Eurasian ingredients. And so
1: they they are born out of uh, military captivity, um, widespread, regardless of what region you came from. You most likely got a same list of commodity foods or military food rations. Uh, you could be this, uh, on the Seminole Nation, or in the the forests of the Northwest, or in the Great Plains, or in the Southwest, but you you pretty much got the same type of military food rations, mm-hmm. and so that's why you see fry bread across Native America in the United States, mm-hmm. uh, even up into Canada is referred to as bannock, you know. Yeah. So it's it's a food born out of oppression, um, but without the ingenuity of our grandmothers and daughters and aunties. Um, they, we would not have been able to sustain ourselves. So it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a love, hate relationship. Yeah. Uh, I don't say it goes away forever. I think it, it's, the story is told and it's consumed responsibly, you know, cause it is a part of our culinary mm-hmm. repertoire as, yeah. as, as cooks and peoples, you know, it has deep meaning and nostal- nostalgic components for families that really survived with absolutely nothing, you mm-hmm. know? So
0: yeah. we can't forget those intimate histories as well. Yeah and it's it's delicious i mean that's what yeah. Know, yeah a lot of foods that aren't so good for us are taste really good yeah they're uh, it's deceptively delicious and um it, it's
1: uh it, like i said it has a lot of um uh, cultural and personal and familial connections to different families all over native america and i think if we were able to contextualize this history um food choices might change mm-hmm. and so instead of being uh, overly aggressive and forcing change on people about their diets. Uh, cause in kind of in, where in the work that I do, it, it wouldn't be, uh, appropriate to try to force change on anyone. Um, that would kind of be verging on shaming people for what they choose to eat because they don't know, they don't have the information, proper information. So allowing people to go on, um, to be guided to discover for themselves and make their own opinions and decisions, I think, is is a more appropriate course of action, I think, when it comes to mm-hmm. that or other indigenous foods.
0: Yeah. Another uh, somewhat related problem. Um, you have talked about, about this, that there's um, some areas and reservations. There's a food, uh, food desert problem. Just, a, you know, not a whole lot of stores and... Uh, you might, you, the convenience store might be closest and, mm-hmm. and a can, you know, a can of Pringles might be the yeah. <laughs> easiest thing to yeah, get to, definitely. you know?
1: Yeah, uh, definitely. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Um, the term food desert has kind of arrived uh, or uh, been used more and more over the past 10, 15, 20 years. And, and it does refer to uh, food access. And that's one of the major obstacles across Native America is food access and having fresh ingredients. Um, historically, many tribes were in the, mo- in the most um, lush and fertile areas of, the, of America. So San Francisco, California, um, the, red, the uh, Redwoods, uh, Puget Sound, the Great Plains, the Rocky Mountains, Great Lakes, the, the coast, the, all of the East Coast. Um, many of these territories and all those lush, rich environments did not require too much agriculture. Uh, we could forage and follow animals and hunt and gather and the, 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 the world, the, the landscapes could sustain us in that way. But as um, those, those benchmarks in American history, we talked about um, Lewis and Clark expedition, the uh, Manifest Destiny, all those pieces displaced us from those intimate relationships with land. And it was uh, publicly, accept, socially acceptable uh, enforced by the government, enforced by the military, and it was okay to run natives out of their ancestral homelands and put them in the places where foods just will not grow. And over time, we remained there, and um, we're kind of imposed food systems, imposed ideas around food and food consumption, and so. Today, that manifests in in uh, food deserts, and not only some, some reservations are still in their very lush ancestral lands, but the spiritual, intellectual, emotional dis- detachment from landscape has produced the lack of access and ability to cook. So therefore, the foods might be right outside in the wild environment, but uh, the process of um, displacement or detachment, again, looking for that complex western validation, you know mm-hmm. um, trusting the food pyramid more than ancestral knowledge right mm-hmm. um, and so it it's it's uh, it's an example of kind of the fallout effects of some of those uh displacement and relocation uh programs. so um really doing our best to keep native foods insight in mind is is a solution based course of action i I feel like we're taking in in our homeland. Um, and like my, the white mountain Apache tribe where I'm from, for example, is one of the most calorie rich landscapes in, in the Southwest, uh, yet it's still considered a food desert. Mm. And so that's kind of an example of how we could have this lush landscape, but still be making different food choices. Mm -hmm. So I feel like that's a, that's
0: a good example of what we're talking about when it comes to food deserts. And that choices, and that's probably maybe based on tradition, based on culture. Yeah you know, based on what we've been used to, right? Mm-hmm. So you're, yeah. tr- you're trying to change some of these paradigms. Uh, before we uh, go to break and when we come back, I want to uh, talk about your what you're currently doing, your sure. Nutritional Recovery uh, Program Coordinator, Executive Chef at the Rainbow Treatment Center, and Cafe Go Show on the White Mountain Apache Tribe in in Arizona. So connecting this with, with recovery and with nutrition and with, with health. Um, but before we go to break... So we talked about, uh, you know, the fry bread and how mm-hmm. it's uh, delicious, but maybe not as healthy. Yeah. And we talked about the three sisters, corn, beans, and squash. hmm And uh, so one thought I would have coming to this is I might need to be convinced that, uh, you know, corn, beans, and squash are delicious, right? Mm-hmm. To it. Maybe we could give an example of a dish, <coughs> dish or two that you, you prepare, you know, to, because you, to to get people to eat, yeah. in a traditional way and a healthy way. Yeah. Uh probably also needs to convince their taste buds, right? In- yeah, certainly. And and it has to be
1: uh relevant and tangible. Mm-hmm. Um the dishes can't be like chefy style complex and plated in a real refined French way in my opinion. I mean they can and it's really cool to certain demographics. Um it's creative for like young groups and people but um, the approach that I've begun to take with uh, teaching uh, three sisters, um, the combination is just by doing it, uh, just dicing them up or doing it, is just doing it simple. And so like the, the dish that we did um, yesterday and today, we'll have a roasted butternut squash. It'll have a dried, we call it d'jinji corn, or in Navajo land they would call it steam corn, or down in Mexico they would call it chicos. Basically it's corn that's, been uh, grown and harvested, barbecued in the ground for a couple days, and then dried and then shucked. So it has this really deep, um, deep, sweet, rich, earthy aroma to it. And um, so the dish that we're doing is, is a simple winter variation. And I brought some tepary beans from the Southwest, and I brought some Anasazi beans, uh, so those are the three winter varieties of corn, beans, and squash. And when I when I teach, I say just cook in ratio: equal parts beans, equal car- equal parts corn, equal parts squash, um, and make it colorful and seasoned to your liking. Because it could be a soup, a stew. It could mm-hmm. be roasted. Um, you could just have all three separate on the plate, and it would still be three sisters. You know, mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be mm-hmm. mixed together. You know, um, so and. The way I, en- I hope to encourage people is to think about all the different varieties and colors of corn, think of all the different varieties of beans, all the different varieties and types of squash, and do the math. It's probably millions of combinations mm-hmm. by cooking techniques, seasonality, young vegetables, baby vegetables, hard squash, winter squash, you know, yeah, I, I think it's the possibilities are endless.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then you bring in um, indigenous foods from other places, right?
1: Yeah, certainly. I think um, there are a number of uh, uh, native food producers that that grow and commercially package and sell their ingredients. And I feel like they are a critical piece of this um, foodway resurgence that we're living right now, Uh, because without farmers and harvesters and practitioners of that uh, traditional ecological knowledge, um, we don't have foods to cook with. Uh, without um, a, uh, culturally sensitive, hand-harvested wild rice from Minnesota, we don't have that actual story to tell. Um, without the practice of grow, uh, seed saving and growing corn in the real traditional um, traditional way, which is thousands of years old, we don't have the ability to tell those stories. We might we might only have access to genetically modified organisms or or foods, you know.
0: So um, food producers are very, very important in this uh, process. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back more with uh, Nephi Craig. Uh, he is uh, founder of the Native American Culinary Association and uh, currently is Nutritional Recovery Program Coordinator and Executive Chef at the Rainbow Treatment Center and Cafe Gaucho, uh at the White Mountain Apache Tribe in Arizona. More following this break.
1: In 1976, composer Rebecca Clark was interviewed about a former classmate of hers, the great pianist Myra Hess. Well, the interview revealed some surprising information. Turns out Rebecca Clark was the big story
0: right under everyone's nose. Rebecca Clark's big reveal on the next performance today from APM Tonight at 9 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. Thanks to Wimmer's Sewing, Vacuum, and Bike Dealer, family-owned for 98 years and located on Main Street in Logan, for becoming the newest Pledge Drive sponsor at UPR. You can highlight your company and gain valuable exposure by sponsoring a day during our Spring Pledge Drive, March 21st through the 28th. For more information about how to support UPR through a sponsored day or challenge incentive, contact Katie Swain at 435-797-3107 or katie.swain at usu.edu. Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time here on Utah Public Radio. I hope you'll join me Sunday evenings for a journey through the world of jazz music, from ragtime to bop, from Havana to Logan, Utah, Tune in for a bit of history, commentary, the occasional interview, and of course, all that jazz. Jazz time, Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Chef Nephi Craig. He's a Native American Culinary Association founder He's on the USU campus uh, giving a series of presentations and uh, lectures on his work with the three sisters and Native American cuisine, beans, corn, and squash. He's teaching nutrition, sharing cultural heritage. He's uh, met with uh, hundreds of students from grade school to uh, through uh, graduate school. And uh, there is a lecture that's free and open to the public. You're invited to come. Uh, this afternoon, three o'clock, Merrill kazir Library on the USU campus, room 101. Reception uh, follows. He'll be talking about Native American cuisine and uh, culinary uh, culture. Uh, so, uh, Chef Craig, uh, you currently um, are nutritional recovery program coordinator and executive chef at Rainbow Treatment Center and Cafe Gojo, the White Mountain Apache Tribe in Arizona. So, uh, tell me this: this is uh, Cafe Gojo. It's a, uh, I guess. Cafe open to the public, at least is open sometimes, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, at the uh, Rainbow Treatment Center. Um, so first of all, this uh, you told me before we went on the air, this is uh, located in a former gas station. Mm-hmm. Uh, people in Logan are familiar, and you—you you told me you just went to this restaurant, <laughs> yeah. uh, an Eastern Indian restaurant, uh-huh. uh, 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 tandoori oven, yeah, uh, which is located charmingly, yeah. in an old gas station with working pumps outside. Yeah, is that how it is with Cafe Gojo? Yes, it is, and
1: it—it's—it's uh, um, it, it, it's very much like that. Um, the place we went to, you're speaking of, was excellent last night. By
0: the way, yeah, they do good. They do yeah. good food. Yeah, I, I frequent there oh, <laughs> about once a month or something. Um so uh, uh, recovery center you're 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 cooking for people in recovery. Yes, and this is a this is where I feel fortunate to
1: have the ability and opportunity to take native foods into a uh the deeper realm of the indigenous personal self. Um we're we protect ourselves by different layers of uh, personality traits or uh some different elements of our 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 set of characteristics that make up our personality. And we rarely um, expose that intimate realm where, uh, where, where pain and suffering might exist. <clears throat> and so I feel like it's, uh, when we are able to uh, confront the uh, issue of addiction and recovery, it's, uh, it's a very profound change for people. Um, I like to look at cooking as very tactile and experiential. Um, it's very emotional and it's very cultural and scientific, so I I, I definitely uh, draw on my own experience of traveling and cooking and working, and I also draw on my own re- experience with recovery because um, this June will be my uh, eight years in in sobriety. Oh, wonderful! And so I personally know and um, through lived experience the the power of transformation that comes with. Um, Recovering uh, from addiction or and alcoholism, I feel this issue across uh, Native America is kind of dismissed, and just not just in Native America, but in general, is stigmatized and uh, brushed under the rug. But I feel mental health is one of the uh, critical factors and pieces of our recovery from the larger uh, reality of historical traumas and complex grief. Um, So, at In the Nutritional Recovery Program, we've uh, designed it to uh, take people on a a journey of guided discovery. Um, We will enact certain principles of uh, cognitive behavioral therapy or dialectical behavioral therapy, Um, even notes of existential therapy, because uh, inside the foods there are uh, memories, and we say that foods are carriers of knowledge or carriers of wisdom. And so, when we participate with foods, we, uh, when we first of all, we create safety. And when we're able to participate uh, in the practice of of cooking, we're 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 opened up, and you're kind of in a moment where you're um, time traveling. You're thinking of family. You're thinking of past experiences, and you're not too focused on the the fears that paralyze us in active addiction. Um, <clears throat> so. We hope that allowing individuals to participate and learn some of these food historical notes uh, and learn some hands-on skills, uh, that they will add that to their support system as White Mountain Apache community members and that they can um, apply that at home because we always say that cooking in a restaurant is okay, it's, it's fine, and that's amazing, um, but it really starts at home. Uh, we really can't make a change just by cooking in a restaurant per se uh we have the most um uh, we have the most potential to impact our families and make different decisions along with this life change of recovery and um so I feel like if If all of the health disparities uh, from diabetes, obesity, heart disease, the mortality rates, the uh, suicide rates and violence and all of these things, they're just the physical manifestations of historical trauma and complex grief and interruptions of parenting patterns. It is a very deep and uh, um, uh, the root causes are evident. So I feel like in the treatment center setting and in a cafe, Gojo, we're able and fortunate to be able to mix those behavioral elements of, a, of team group work in a kitchen um, to activate ancestral knowledge. Um, an example of that being I, I'm not a fluent Apache language speaker, but I encounter other people that are on a regular basis. And they hold keys and wisdom that I don't have even as a professional. So in re- all reality, I'm not a master chef at all. I'm still a student of the experience of recovery. And that's just one example of shared knowledge and how we heal together. Um, we feel like we're treating those symptoms uh, in in an intimate way through food, and so the cafe will be um, part uh, part full time staff and then
0: part uh, vocational training students who are in recovery as well. So it's it's really neat. Mm. So this is the, definitely it is not only health, but it's culture. Mm-hmm. But that relates to as you're saying that's it's, uh, the culture can be healing. if yeah, you connect to the culture definitely. And mm. and uh, some of the rem- uh, feed- feedback
1: we've gotten is that wow, I didn't even know that tomatoes were an indigenous food. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know that there were no beans in Europe. I didn't even know that there was that Italian food is based on a native food, um, the tomato. Right. Yeah. I didn't know that uh, there were no uh, chilies in India and Asia before 1500, you know. And so basically expanding food knowledge gives a sense of, um, improves personal self-vision basically, um, validating ancestral knowledge and validating experience and hopefully allowing someone to come to encounter themselves in a new way for the first time and see their potential
0: and really go for it and mm-hmm. recover it. That's interesting. Um, You know, people, I guess, in tomato country or Mm -hmm. chili country, right, hadn't realized that, uh, you know, that that traveled from the New World all the way across and and became an important part of Mm -hmm. revitalizing Italian cuisine or Asian cuisine.
1: Yeah, it it really, uh, native foods, excuse me, native foods really revolutionized world gastronomy and uh, world cooking around the world today um we uh i like to say that anywhere you are in the united, in the united states you're on indigenous land and the foodways that evolved uh from chicago to new york to la to phoenix they're all uh influenced by ancestral knowledge and indigenous landscapes um so you could say that all of contemporary american cuisine the foundational uh terroir of that is is native american cuisine Mm -hmm. So, um, when we highlight and identify what native foods really are, we could go to the grocery store, for example, and about 70% of
0: of all products in the store will be indigenous foods. Mm -hmm. So it's a matter of education, Mm -hmm. a matter of connecting to the, connecting that back to the culture. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, definitely. And, um, providing that guided discovery, uh, because, just cooking alone won't save someone's life it won't keep them sober when it comes to addiction it's an intimate layer that uh, enables one to fill the fill the void um like for my own recovery process and um being deep into it going on eight years it's uh i realized that um the even though i was functional and able to achieve certain things in my path i still had this void that I was dying to fill, and I was trying to fill that with colonial mindsets. Mm-hmm. I was embodying colonialism in very various different ways. I was embodying a value system that wasn't necessarily indigenous to, to me, and that became damaging. Mm-hmm. I was, uh, I could possibly, you could say that I was buying into the, the image of the violent Apache that was created in the 1800s, not by us, but it was sensationalized in movies. Um, so... Um, embodying certain elements of toxic masculinity, um, yeah. the patriarchy as where we're matrilineal societies, and so ultimately all those complex um, uh, things that I was uh, trying to embody and pursue um, ultimately manifested and turned into aggression, anger, fear, and ultimately became uh, an addiction. You yeah. know, yeah. And so I feel like detaching from that was was critical. And
0: the foodways was an anchor point for for me as a professional cook. We'll leave the conversation there. We're at the end of our time. I uh, just want to let you know that Nephi Craig, uh, who is an executive chef and a founder of the Native American Culinary Association, um, is uh, giving a presentation on Native American cuisine and culinary culture. That's this afternoon, three o'clock. Merrill-Kazir Library on the USU campus, room 101, and reception follows, and that is free and uh, open to the public. Nephi Craig, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Yes, thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening. And uh, tomorrow, uh, another series of uh, programs with uh, Pulitzer Prize winners. Caroline Frazier won a Pulitzer Prize for her biography of Laura Ingalls Wilder. We'll talk about that tomorrow. Thanks for listening today.